Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show involves women in the fishing industry. Over the last four years of Coastal Conversations, we've shared many interviews with members of the fishing industry. Most of these interviews have been with men. The reality is that fishing remains a fairly male-dominated occupation. But women have long played many roles in the success of this industry, both on the water and on land. More and more women are fishing, such as Frida McKee, who has chased lobster with her husband in Prince Edward Island since 1982. And more and more women are getting involved in work that fishermen depend on, like Sonia Corbett, a trap builder in South Portland, Maine. Whether it is men or women physically hauling nets or winching up trap lines, increasing numbers of women are working to keep coastal and marine ecosystems and resources healthy, like fisheries biologist Sarah Madrinal. And women have dedicated their lives to the safety of fishermen themselves, such as Jessica Eckerd and Rebecca Weil, who run a program to increase the odds of fishermen wearing life jackets in this notoriously dangerous occupation. All of these women have stories of their own about their connections to the industry, and most, you will find, share a message about using your voice and becoming involved in the issues that sustain both the industry and the culture of fishing communities. All the interviews you will hear today were collected at the 2019 Maine Fishermen's Forum, which just wrapped up on March 2nd, and they're part of the Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum project, supported by the First Coast College of the Atlantic, Maine Sea Grant, and the Island Institute. Let's get started with Frida McKee from Surrey, Prince Edward Island. Frida is the only woman we are featuring today from outside of Maine. Frida and her husband and fishing partner Edwin have been coming to the Maine Fishermen's Forum for years. They feel it's useful for fishermen from different regions and countries to learn from each other and identify the issues that unify rather than divide them. Frida and Edwin are also committed to educating the next generation in the industry. Recently, they hosted a contingency of Maine students and teachers enrolled in the Eastern Maine Skippers Program, a high school program for kids who want a future in marine industries. The Maine-based students spent time fishing and visiting with Prince Edward Island fishermen, including the McKees and others. Here are Frida and Edwin being interviewed by Galen Koch of the First Coast and Julia Cardoso, a College of the Atlantic graduate student. You may wonder why we're including Edwin's voice when the show is dedicated to women in the fishery. Well, just listen. Frida and Edwin are really a team, finishing each other's sentences and adding to each other's thoughts seamlessly. You can tell their teamwork is grounded in decades working together on the water. 
last year we had students from the Skippers program come up and uh, and we're hoping to, to do the same thing this summer and we hope to get them into the high school in, in Surrey because the, the, the kids in fishing communities, once they can lift a trap, uh, they want to get out of that high school. And um, if they, there's ways to make it more interesting for them in high school and uh, they, they could uh, definitely do better. Yeah, the program they have here seems great. And we and the principal in Surrey seems really interested when we spoke with her, so she's interested in learning more and maybe being able to do something at home. High schools need to start teaching these <clears throat> things that'll give them a career, fishing or farming. And I would like to hear when you, what some of your experiences were just talking to the students when they came up and things that they might have, like perceptions that they had that surprised you. I just loved seeing, especially, I can't think of his name, the one young guy, but he was just excited by everything because everything is different. Our traps are different, just a little bit, but he was just so excited by learning everything and how we do it. And He never stopped and uh, right for the whole day and we got ashore. I don't know, I went to Surrey or something. He came, he just never... And they had arrived in PEI at two in the morning and we go out fishing at four. So, <laughs> and he just never stopped and was just Zach, happy to learn everything. Zach, that was yeah. it. Learn everything and, and see it all, which is, it's great to see. Yeah. And there was things that he, that I don't know what all, but different times he'd say, yeah, we, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I could make them changes. <laughs> what were some of those changes? Well, I don't know. I guess maybe our hauler systems and... Like we don't lift traps, the, we have hydraulics and booms and. And are um are those wooden traps heavier than wire traps? Yeah. Yes. I think they're a little more awkward too. They're the like the wire trap you can catch it anywhere. And yeah, ours are square, similar shape and everything, just mostly a wood mm-hmm. frame compared to the traps here. And we did try the wire ones, but. You just found they would that not these work. Fished better. Yep, when the wooden water, ones fish better in the beginning of the season, the and we cold. could find no reason for it. And anyone down here that Edwin knew, we can find no reason for it. But we tried for years and gave up. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that they wouldn't work as well as they do here. But and once the water warmed up by June, they were <clears> even. <throat> it was fine. It was just the first several weeks that they wow. they got. So whether the really cold water, I don't know, but there's something. You make your own traps, is that right? Is that you? Every everyone in Atlantic Canada or in PEI really? builds really? their own traps. We all fish wooden traps. Is that regulated? No. no. Part of it is because we only fish two months of the year, so you have the rest of the year to build your traps and. All winter long, what else do you do? The strait is frozen over. and <laughs> Work on your boat, work on your traps, work on your nets. How do you two stay? What are your occupations? Is that your farming time? We, we blueberry have, farm. So we, uh, we grow blueberries and we harvest blueberries and we cut wood. And um, clear land for more blueberries. And um, go to fishing meetings. And then build traps and nets. And do you catch... And freeze your bait. I heard that we, that we have. We didn't last year, but uh, just it's no good to spend too much money catching your own bait. 
when the when the bait when there's mackerel close, we'd uh, catch our own bait and freeze it. There's a freezer plant in Surrey that you bring your tubs of bait in and they box them up and they freeze them. So you pay a certain amount per pound, not very much for them to box it up and then so much per pound and they store it for you until the next year. Whenever you need it, you just call them, go pick it up. It's one of the best things that's happened really to the fishery. Yeah, when did that, when did they... The Harbour Authority in Surrey built that freezer probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. As a service to the to the local fishermen, yeah, it it makes money as well. Like it's a business, yeah. but people come from all over PEI to freeze their bait there. Blueberries, people who farm blueberries freeze blueberries there. It's it's used for all sorts of. How many fishermen are there on PEI? Do you have a number for There's that? There's about eleven hundred lobster fishing licenses in PEI. It always used to be twelve to thirteen hundred, but there's been a few buybacks and. Do you see a lot of younger people? There has interested? been the, there has been the last while. Oh, there's young people. There's lots of them interested. I think they all want to go fishing. You know, from the time they're in grade school. It's different in PEI though. There's only a certain number of fishermen, and there's so many licenses. And to become a lobster fisherman, you have to buy an existing license. There will never be more licenses. So it's different than it is here, where. Student licenses. Uh, yeah, right? student licenses and stuff. There's, that's it. What are they, and what's the processing? Because as far as I understand it, you've got a lot more processing going on than we yes. in, in Canada yeah. in general. So what are they processing and who are they shipping it to? It's, it's processed into numerous products and it's shipped all over the world. And it's lobster primarily. Primarily lobster, yeah. And a yeah. big part of it, I think, is, well our distance for markets but also we catch we all fish in two months so we catch a lot of lobster in a short time we can't get that there's not a big enough live market and we're we're catching them at, at the time when the temperatures rise and all the time and we don't have we have the warmest water north of the carolinas so it's it's extremely hard to keep lobsters and cool the water to um to keep them alive, our like our uh, we we have these. If we get rain, it's a, a flat. The province is fairly flat, and if you get an inch of rain, it runs into the rivers, and the rivers drain into the harbors, and the salinity in the water in the harbor change enough that if we had lobsters floating in our harbor, they'd we'd lose them. So it's it's a little different. We gotta we have to put them in the truck as soon as we come in and kiss them goodbye. That's, wow. That's, if you're fishing two months of the year, you've that volume. It's like you're probably just are people exhausted? <laughs> you know, are you going for fishing as much as you possibly can? We we in fish those two like, months. We fish every day. Every day. Not uh, most harbors don't fish Sundays, but other than that, every yeah. every trap every day. How many yeah. traps do you have? Two hundred and seventy-two or three or three. Yeah, it's whatever. However many tags come in the bag, I don't know. Yeah. And that's regulated the number of traps. The yeah. But it's worked because the catches are good. Yeah. So now we need to work on the quality being good. Mm-hmm. Be sure that every lobster that comes out of the water gets the best return. So. Was your fi- family fi- fishing My father family? did, yeah. You inherited some of that territory? or No. no we, he had his own fishing fleet that oh, fished. Wow. He was yeah. still fishing when Edwin started. So. Yeah. Not lobstering. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he had his own 
Edwin bought one yeah. off someone else that retired. Yeah, my yeah. father started lobstering when he was about 14. I lobster fish with Edwin since 1982. That was Frida McKee and her husband Edwin, both lobster fishermen from Surrey, Prince Edward Island. Our show today is about women connected to the fishing industry, women like Frida McKee, who has been fishing with her husband for more than three decades. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and online at weru.org, with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. The stories of women in the fishery that we are playing today were recorded a couple weeks ago at the Maine Fisherman's Forum in Rockland, so we won't be taking any calls today. Our next voice is that of Sonia Corbett, a lobster trap builder from South Portland, Maine. Sonia walks us through the mechanics of building traps, her connections to the fishing industry, and some of the issues facing Portland's working waterfronts. Sonia has attended the forum for years, this year staffing the trade show booth for her employer, Sea Rose Trap Company. Here is Sonia being interviewed by me, Natalie Springle, with the help of Ellie Ordock, a graduate student studying community fisheries issues. I build lobster traps. Tell us about that. Um, I started lobstering and decided my body couldn't really handle that much more. So um, I had a family friend that had his own lobster trap company. He's been building traps for over 30 years, probably. And uh, he's a retired fisherman as well. And he um, just asked if if I would like to join. And I said yes, because I was looking for a job to keep in the industry. I love the industry so much. It's been my whole life since I was 20, I guess. Um, I fell in love with it, and I didn't go back to college and kept up with the industry. Love building traps. It's something that I could see myself doing for quite a while. What do you, how does one build traps? Can you describe it? Yeah, um, we get all our wire in rolls. Um, when we get to the shop, we get it on a straightener, and, and when it comes off, it's nice and straight, and we cut all the pieces to size. We get it to the bender. We bend up all the pieces, the body, the ends, the bridges. Um, start clipping it together, and then we, we cut all the heads ourselves. We make our own concrete weights. So depending on the different runners they want or the weights, um, we put all that on, the heads on, tie them back, door goes on, and they're ready to go. We get orders of 100 to 300. So it's very, it's monotonous doing the same thing over and over again. But it's, you, gotta, you have to love it in order to do it and be happy with your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, what's the size of the company that you're with? Um, not big. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have my boss and then his son. They run the company and then there's four of us workers. And we just opened another location in Bristol up at Pemaquid. Um, and there's one guy that works up there. And where's your first location? South Portland. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said that you had been lobstering, but wasn't so great for your body anymore. Yeah, I was getting really tired all the time. And I was year-round offshore in the winter and all that. And it was just one of those things where I, I missed it every day still. And I don't know, I'm not doing it. But I was just kind of at the point where... I decided I needed something else. I needed, I don't want to say I needed more, I needed less, I guess. <laughs> yeah, probably less, though, so, of a daily struggle. Get up at three in the morning and hurt yourself all day. It's the way I felt I was going, being a stern man. If I was a captain, it would probably be a different story, but I never went that route. And what made you want to stay in the industry? What do you love about the industry? Oh, so many things. 
the community probably the best. I mean, I spent, being a woman, I started out on the boat on Chibig Island, which is where I'm from. And there are women ca- captains out there, whatever. And when I came back to Portland and started working at um, a retail store as commercial fish manager, being a woman and trying to get my get respect, I guess, was it took me a while. And once I got it, it was almost like a drug. It was almost like a like who else can I get to like me? Or who you know, this old guy like really hates women on his boat. Like I want to see if I can get on that boat, and I would. And you know, it was kind of like a thing. I just kind of became in love with first of all the ocean of course but the ocean and the people and the just the community and started having real real feelings for issues that they have and you know all that stuff so I don't want to get out of it how did you first get into the fishing industry um being on from Shebeg my family I had a my mom's cousin I uh, was a captain and I just needed a summer job in between college and I went out there I lived there and I worked for him and then I just never left I just decided that it was a good way to make some quick money and it was fun being living on the island with all the different stern men and you know just a, that kind of summer life and then I just yeah I never left after that what's it like transitioning from being part of the harvesting end of the industry to part of the sort of gear it was, it was easy. I see the same people. I build for the captains that I worked for, um, and just as long as you have a love for the industry, you know, it just personally it took a while for me. I still, you know, asked to go out on the boat, but my, my little brother lobsters, my cousins, you know, all my friends, and I'll be like, oh, if you guys need help on Saturday, like I'm not doing anything. And that comes down to the day, I'm like, no. I'm okay. I don't want to get sucked back in. So I just, I try to stay off the boats, but, you know, it's, it's okay being with people that I still see all this fishermen and still get to be a part of the industry as much as I was for the most part. And I, I love meeting a woman who makes the gear. Mm. That's so cool. Are there... What's the sort of ratio? Do you, do you oh, work God. mostly with men yep. at the, in this end of the business too? Yep. Um... All men, for the most part. Uh, there, I think, there's a lot of women, we cut heads, we, um, the twine comes in, a 50-pound bale, we cut down the strips and then cut down the heads individually. There's a lot of women that are into that, um, can do that from home, and I can do it from home sometimes, and, um, so, it's pro- I've met one other woman that's a trap builder, she works for another company. I haven't met her, but I've seen a picture. <laughs> oh, who's that? But no, I don't really know him very many. Is C. Rose Trap Company in the trade show? Yep. We have a booth there. Cool. Yeah, we made chairs. And, the, you know, all those the lobster trap chairs you see or the tables and stuff. We do all that fun stuff. So it's artistic, kind of. You kind of get into making fun stuff, too. You said that you started finding yourself sort of interested in the issues that are impacted. Yeah. The bait issues... Right now, um, the Portland just went through a um, Save the Working Waterfront movement where um, we have a lot of money from big hotels and stuff like that trying to come in and take over the waterfront, which would push the fishermen off, would push off their parking, like little things like that, access to the wharf and places to store their traps. And we just went through all that and passed... Um, there was a... Back in the 80s, there was a movement where they actually got the city to pass where if you're on the water side of Commercial Street, you can't 
um, build unless it's directly marine related. That kind of fell apart up to now, so we got that passed again. So if you're looking to build a hotel or you know office space there, you, you can't anymore if you're on the water side of Commercial Street. The fishermen do a great job of fighting for what they want. Um, there are definitely hotels, parking garages, and that kind of stuff going going in. But I don't personally see that much of a change. I mean, we get some, you know, some of those big upscale restaurants come in, and where one of my friends has his boat. Um, we like to hang out on the boats a lot. Just kind of like everyone gets together. We have some drinks. We go out for a cruise and come back and and hang out, listen to music, and a nice restaurant went up right there. And they said they were actually really good about it. it took up a bunch of parking, but as long as um, we kind of kept things to a minimum, they allowed like all the lobster boats to still be there. Because people come there and sit at a restaurant with all the windows, and they want to see that. They want to see the working waterfront. You know that's why they come. So, and the fishermen are doing a great job at keeping what they want alive because it's their livelihood for sure. And then their kids and their kids and yeah. And what do you think um, the rest of the Portland community feels about the water, the waterfront? The consensus seems to be, along with the fishermen, they want things to, to stay the same. You know, I mean, I don't think that it's anyone locally that's trying to come in and build a big hotel on the water or take up, you know, any of the wharfs. So I think locally it seems to be the same consensus of let's keep it the way it is. You know, of course, we want to grow, we want tourists to come, we want, but we feel like they come for the way it is right now. So well, we don't really have to change much. You know, everyone always wants to change, and sometimes it's okay to just stay the way we are. And yeah, they were successful. A very, very proud moment for those, for the fishermen. That was a pretty big one. <laughs> they took a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, I mean, the bait shortage thing is pretty big right now. Um, there's not really much you can do about that to be honest it's just I have one of my best friends she's a woman and she um, owns a bait company in Portland and she's and they fish for herring that's what they do so she's you know people that are so severely affected by this like I'm gonna have to get a different apartment cheaper apartment like their whole lives are changed because this and the fishermen of course too Um, that might that's something that you know you would love to tackle but you really can't because it's above us at that point. You know, it's not just, hey, can we go to a city council meeting and try to change our minds? Like, that's not going to work. So just things that are kind of out of your reach and things that you can tackle that, you know, you can make a difference. Do you guys, in the trap building part of the industry, do you think that the bait issue or even the whale issue is will have a potential impact on your business? Yeah, the whale issue, um, they're talking about um, cutting the trap limit from 800 to 600. That could be, you know, anything that will impact the profits of the fishermen will impact everyone down the line, including us, for sure. Um, you know, and even they love to get new trucks. It'll probably affect the Ford dealership, you know, like you never know. Um, so, yeah, things like that will definitely affect us. And if they have to change their rope, we sell rope, stuff like, you know, Kind of stuff like that. It all it affects a whole bunch of people down the line that you don't really realize until it's talked about or yeah, you know, really there until you're in the moment and realize that our trap orders have been cut in half because 
people are, if you're cutting your limit from 800 to 600, all of a sudden people have 200 traps to get rid of. And the licenses are all, you know, they're going to, it affects a whole bunch of things. What do you hope for the industry in the future? The future, God. Peace. (laughs) Peace. No more um, territorial wars or, you know, there's there's some fighting that I hate to see. Um, Even between companies, trap companies and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, probably just everyone, can't we just all be friends? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Obviously growth and... You know, the cutbacks, people, they're facing so many challenges that are hurtful to them and their their livelihood. If you really care for the industry, you can. there's so many things you can do as far as, you know, get involved in the community, get involved in the fights, get involved in the all the things that you care about to make a difference. Because that's where it comes from. That's how things change is your voice, you know, making a difference in what you believe in. I have one last question. Um, I think you said you got into the industry when you were around 20. Yeah. What would you say to your 20-year-old self about getting into this industry? You go, girl. (laughs) (laughs) You go. You're going to do it. You're going to make it. No, that's probably it. That was Sonia Corbett, a trap builder from South Portland, interviewed at the recent Maine Fisherman's Forum in Rockland. In that interview, you heard Sonia talk about bait, and whales as the two single greatest issues facing the lobster industry today. If you haven't heard the news stories, the herring fishery quota, or how much fish are allowed to be harvested, was recently severely cut because the number of juvenile herring in the ocean is at a record-breaking low. This is a major concern for lobstermen because herring is the most widely used bait for lobster traps in Maine waters. As for right whales, fisheries managers and the fishing industry have been working for years on how to decrease the number of whales that get entangled in fishing gear. The number of endangered North American right whales has been on the decline for the last couple years, likely from a number of causes, but it is likely that fisheries managers will be looking to implement new gear regulations that could severely impact how, where, and when fishermen deploy their traps. The combination of both issues, a bait shortage and gear changes to accommodate whales, has the industry very concerned about the future and a potential downturn in the lobster fishery as a result. As Sonia Corbett, the trap builder, explained, any downturn in the lobster fishery could have far-reaching impacts on all kinds of businesses. Our third out of four interviews of Women in the Fishery is with Sarah Madrinal, a fisheries biologist and educator whose work in Downeast Maine is supported by three organizations, the Alewife Harvesters of Maine, the Downey Salmon Federation, and the Nature Conservancy. With Sarah, we are turning our attention towards alewives and other diadromous species that spend part of their lives in freshwater and part of their lives at sea. Sarah's stories help us see how fisheries issues are intertwined. Though we are talking about alewives and other sea-run fish, we aren't straying very far from lobster issues. With the anticipated bait shortage that Sonia described in our last interview, Sarah and others are wondering if the small-scale alewife fishery could be sustainably scaled up to help pick up some slack. Finally, in this interview, Sarah also explores living and working in Downeast Maine and how issues such as the opioid crisis impact both the industry and, by extension, coastal communities as a whole. 
You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio, and here is Sarah Madrinal, interviewed by Matt Frassica, host of The Briny, a podcast about our connections to the sea. My name is Sarah Madrinal. I am a fisheries biologist. I work for a combination of three nonprofits. So that's uh, Downey Salmon Federation is my home. That's the offices that I work at and they deal with all my grants. And then I also work for Alewife Harvesters of Maine and the Nature Conservancy. I have uh, really three different big field seasons during the year. Um, And then in, in between time, I look at the data that I've collected and I do also do a lot of education outreach work as well and I I work exclusively with sea run species um, not including salmon. How do you how do you distinguish something like alewives from mm-hmm. something like salmon? So um, I think of the, about them all in the same group. So um, slowly I've started to take on more sea run fish. So I focus on alewives, blueback herring, smelt, and tomcod. Um, and they're kind of in the same family. And the distinguishing factor, uh, I think about their biology and maybe their role in the culture, culture and heritage of main rivers, especially sea run species have been harvested for a really, really long time. And there's really rich cultural history. So they're all very related. The more sea run species you have in a river, it's an indication of it being healthy. I'm really lucky that I have field seasons for my job all year round. Um, And I'm really big into being outside all the time. So one of my studies uh, is on Tomcod and I study them in December and January. So I'm outside in rivers every day that I can possibly be in December and January. And it's it's one of the most fun surveys that I do. Um, and I work with volunteers, too, who also go out in the field. So it's it's really fun, and I really look forward to it. I think my I love my job so much that each season that I have a field season, it's like something that I really look forward to, and I want to get outside, and I want to be outside every day. And, and um, yeah, it's it's really exciting in that way. And I think, I think the season's don't affect me as much because of that. It's kind of like, oh, I'm looking forward to this one thing. Um, so, you know, I don't, I never get cabin fever or anything like that. I started working with alewives when I was in college. I went to Colby College and I did my senior thesis on alewives and um, did it less on the biology and more on the social structures around the fishery and found it really fascinating. I think of Down East as my community. I've lived a bunch of different places Down East now. Um, and it's really, I was talking about this today with folks at my booth, that it's really possible for one person to make a big difference, whether that's socially, economically, um, you know, culturally. Uh, you can really make an impact and, and connect with a lot of people. And I also really like the uh, two degrees of separation between everyone, everybody, anyone you meet knows somebody else that you know, and it's it in a way it makes it feel like a big family. Um, but it's definitely, uh, especially living down east, it's a family that, you know, you have to get into by knowing someone. But once you're in, you're really in there. Um, so, and there's lots of different sub communities in, in each town, each region, and um, seeing how they interact and cross over, especially with really diverse backgrounds, is really interesting. What about uh, concerns or like issues in the community that are of, of, of 
concerning to you? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, it's interesting in Down East Maine because we're so connected to our resources there's a lot of social problems for sure the one that always comes to mind first is the opioid crisis um and you know that that affects my personal life more than my professional life and but but by the same token we're so connected to the resource that when there's something like now there's a bait shortage that affects everybody and everybody's personal lives and and you know just like the opioid crisis pretty much affects everyone's personal lives i know very few people who don't have a family member or friend who's somehow affected and the same goes for the for the lobster industry those are the two biggest like issues that that come up in in my life for sure mm. Um, so, like, the bait, the bait crisis affects you even though you're not a lobsterman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, whether it's friends or family or partner or whatever, some pretty much everyone is connected in some way to the fishery. So it might not affect me specifically or um, my job, but it's it's something that everybody talks about. And it's, it's almost like some of these issues are like a common bond. It's, you know, it's easy to talk to somebody about these issues. It's a good conversation starter in a way. Um, and it's, you know, it's like the ties that bind. Are there um, changes that you've observed either in your work or in your, you know, just just being part of the community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say waterfront access. So that's something I deal with less in my work now, but I used to work for Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, which is down in Stonington. That's why I lived in Stonington. And waterfront access, I mean, even in Cutler, I live in Cutler, um, it's really noticeable in the winter. You can see all the driveways that are not plowed. And that's an indication that that waterfront property is is owned by people who summer there. Um, and the, even the people who have access to coastal properties, uh, the taxes are really high. Um, and so it's, it's hard for them to keep those properties. And um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really concerning, especially for, for lobstermen and, um, you know, really anyone who wants to have some kind of, you know, aquaculture or seaweed, you know, those are industries as well. So yeah, that's, that's really concerning and there's no easy fix for it. That's why it's so concerning. What about, I mean, what is going on with salmon and alewives? Are there positive steps being made? Are there dams coming down? Are there things that you've seen just in the time, in the years that you've been working on it? Yeah, for sure. I work less with salmon, but for alewives, it's a really hopeful story. Um, I've seen dams come down for sure. I've seen fishways improved and if, fish can swim upstream to ponds and lakes they come back in huge numbers and they're not as picky as some other species they don't need really high quality water um so it's a really hopeful story and it's a story that can be told by lots of people because we deal with volunteers and community members and you know i've dipped uh alwives over a uh, culvert with three generations so it's a it's a really hopeful story in you know a lot of things we hear about fisheries decline and alewives aren't declining at least not in maine and we're making really huge strides all over the state and it, it's literally every stakeholder you could imagine is involved which is really hopeful 
The thing that's been coming up the most with the bait shortage is alewives as a bait source. So they are a lobster bait and a halibut bait um, traditionally, but they're really small scale fisheries. They're run by each individual town and then the harvester themselves can decide how how much they want to harvest. Obviously, there's an upper limit, but if they don't want to harvest up to that upper limit, they don't have to. So it would be great if the alewife fishery could step in, but kind of the beauty of it is that it's small, it's co-managed, it's local. Um, so the thing that we're all having to think about is how do we scale up without hurting our resource? How do we scale up without hurting the type of management style we have and um ultimately the decision to open more alewife runs is up to the state and the uh, federal government so the atlantic states marine fisheries commission so there is some local control over the runs that we have but then opening new runs is, is a pretty arduous process at this point so, in other words, alewives aren't going to fix the problem in no. 2019? No, exactly. And uh, currently, to open an alewife run, you need 10 years of scientific data, which is a, a lot of data in a long time. And um, there have a lot of the places that are uh, going through the process of reopening. It's one person who's doing a lot of that work. And uh, so if that one person has health concerns or, you know, wants to do something else, that's 10 years. Um, and it's not exactly a lucrative fishery either. So it's a lot of work and a lot of love. And if you don't love what you're doing and you really don't believe in it, then it's kind of not worth it. I think the thing that I've learned in the four years that I've been down east is that education and learning whether that's formal or not is so paramount and i've i've talked to a lot of people who didn't even know there were alewives in their backyard or, or didn't know anything about salmon or any of the other species that i work with and i think education also helps with common understanding because there's a lot of misunderstanding um within different groups you know fishermen and scientists it's a classic clash and um my job being able to work with harvesters and fisheries but also being able to do science work has put me forced me to be in the middle and I have to say actually sitting down and talking to people especially one-on-one there are very few people that I haven't been able to come to a common ground on or a common understanding at least and so having that education and being willing to take time with people and you, you might have to talk to somebody a couple times about something before you can reach that place of understanding but it's it's really really important and it's it's really easy to be divided and to to not like certain groups but I think we especially in fisheries, we have a lot more in common than I think we realize or are able to communicate. It's it's my favorite part of my job now to do uh, education outreach work, especially um, with kids, getting kids outside. That's really, really important. Um, and then, you know, the younger you can get kids outside, the more that I've found that they fall in love with things that are in their backyard, resources, and um, those kids can become stewards of the resource. And um, it's it's really powerful, especially, you know, you see long dynasties of fishing families. And, um, you know, even if the fisheries change, those, those families keep on fishing. So um, a lot of those people are stewards of their resources, too, and they don't even know it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, educating kids when they're young about 
about the world around them is really important. And for a lot of kids, especially kids who uh, don't really fit in in classic classroom settings, teaching and learning outside is, is a way that they can thrive, really. What role does the ocean play in your life? Oh, the ocean is everything. <laughs> the ocean is everything. <laughs> um, I live really close to the ocean, so it's literally part of my daily life. I, I live right on the water. Um, and I think it, in in coastal Maine, it is the tie that binds for sure. And, you know, whether whether it's a summer person who's coming to look at the ocean or a fisherman who's been fishing for 40 years or you know, really a, a scientist, anybody in between, it's it's really the thing that we have in, in common. And I think the ocean, especially for me and the work that I do, I work in rivers so much that sometimes I forget that so much life happens in the ocean and even some of the species I study. So I think it, it can almost be something we take for granted, um, that it's always going to be there and um, the resources are always going to be there, even though clearly history tells us otherwise. But it's it's easy to see just all that blue and think everything below it is stagnant when it's not it's always moving it's very dynamic um somebody told me a long time ago studying fisheries is like forestry except you can't see any of the trees and they're constantly moving that was sarah madrinal a fisheries biologist and educator whose work in down east maine is supported by down east salmon federation alewife harvesters of maine and the nature conservancy If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Our show today features women engaged in various aspects of Maine's fishing industry. These interviews were captured as part of the 2019 Voices of the Maine Fishermen's Forum project, a collaboration between the First Coast, Sea Grant, College of the Atlantic, and the Island Institute. Our final interview features two women, Jessica Eckerd and Rebecca Weil. Both of these women are occupational therapists, a profession that you might not normally associate with the fishing industry. Their connection and their reason for attending the Maine Fishermen's Forum, where all of these interviews were conducted, is that they are conducting a project to analyze the barriers to fishermen wearing life jackets. They are also working closely with manufacturers to design safety gear that will better meet the needs of the industry. Here is Jessica Eckerd and Rebecca Weil, interviewed by Matt Frassica. Well, we've been working uh, to see if we can reduce deaths from falls overboard in commercial fishing and specifically with uh, commercial lobstermen. So that's what Jess and I have been working on. Yeah, in Maine and Massachusetts. So. And what, what does that work entail? Well, at first it's really understanding and listening to the fishermen to try and find out what the barriers and motivators are to wearing life jackets and if we can understand from the, their perspective what they need, um, what their wishes are, what their goals are then we can try and um, find things that might resolve uh, what happens when a fall overboard occurs. So that's the approach we've taken is really just asking questions, Mm -hmm. um, trying out different life jackets with fishermen, seeing what their thoughts are, what they'd like to change, um, and then going out and looking for solutions. So it's it's about involving the whole community really in finding solutions uh, to something that affects the whole community when someone drowns, which is a horrible event so Mm -hmm. we're very aware of um, having heard many stories from people about 
uh, deaths from falls overboard and how just devastating it is for the families, but the whole community. Um, and so uh, we've been hearing those stories and then trying to respond. Mm-hmm. And what kinds of uh, explanations do you get for why lobstermen don't wear life jackets? Um, a lot of times it's comfort or that it gets in the way while they're working, um, you know, or that it's uh, an entanglement hazard. They're concerned that they'll get caught as they're working and, and pulled over. And so um, over the last two years, we've been trialing various different models with them and trying to find out, you know, what they like, what they don't like, what's comfortable, um, and then working with manufacturers also to try to make adjustments or come out with new models that might answer some of those questions or concerns. And what are the kind of design modifications that you have made uh, in response? Well, we haven't made any specifically (laughs) ourselves, but the manufacturers are very responsive. They're trying to make changes, and really the fishermen have asked for things that make perfect sense. You know, they want things that are, uh, as Jess said, comfortable, but that translates to less bulky. They don't want things that have straps and buckles and pockets and things that could catch on the traps or pull them overboard. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to be able to move in these things because they're working really hard for many hours hauling traps. So it needs to be something that gives them good range of movement and um, really doesn't get in the way. So we've been looking for things like that. And the manufacturers are in a bit of a bind right now because there's a changing regulations for them in terms of labels and harmonizing of standards between the U.S. and Canada. So to make changes typically costs five, fifty to $100,000 to change the simplest thing on a life jacket. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to go through the approval process for them. So they're very conscious of the things we've shared with them, and they want to make changes. And yeah. some of them are already yeah. making those changes. Yeah. Others are saying they need to wait for some of the standards yeah. to change. But they're So we're looking all around yeah. to see what we can find. Some of it's coming from other countries, yeah. um, and some of it's coming from this country. But manufacturers have been incredibly supportive of understanding the needs of the commercial fishermen. Yeah. Do you have a sense of the, the numbers uh, of... Um, how many fishermen wear life vests? How many don't wear life vests? Is there any kind of reliable survey of that? I'm not sure that we have, um, that there's been very many surveys of how many don't. It's usually just talking with them and finding out that they, they don't or they prefer not to. Um, I think when we started doing this and Rebecca worked on an earlier project and was talking with fishermen. It was that nobody wore them. Was what everyone said like nobody wears them, and now we hear more and more stories of guys. You know, oh, there's this guy in my harbor. He always wears one, and so I think we're we're seeing kind of a shift in that um, as we go along. There's mm-hmm. been a definite change in kind of how people talk about them while we're talking with them about them, and and you know the interest that we see. So. And has that change happened over how how long? Even just the last few yeah, years. Just got, if we look just at the forum, the first year, mm, people were pretty skeptical. You know, they were like, "We hate life jackets. We don't want to wear them. They're yeah. awful. They get in the way. They're gonna kill us." Yeah. Um, and now, last year and this year, yeah. we've had just phenomenal interest and yeah. real excitement. I'd say yeah. excitement would be a word. Yeah. And today, we had a beautiful story happen where we yeah. had a captain come up to us and say, you saved our stern man. Um, He, last February, was out on a boat, and he was wearing the Stormline flotation bibs that we had issued as part of our 
study. study to see what would work and what wouldn't. And the crew member was hauling on a line. The line broke. He flipped over, head over heels, over to the side. And in February, water, pretty cold. They zipped the boat around. The captain got him as quickly as they could, which was very fast. And even in that short period of time, he couldn't move his arms and hands to swim. And they said he would have drowned. So it said it saved his life. And he now wears them. That fellow wears them every, <laughs> every day <laughs> when he's fishing. So those, that's... Um, you know, we've had a lot of people now anecdotally yeah. call us and say they're now wearing the gear that yeah. we tried in that trial. Yeah. Um, but this was the first one of someone saying, look, yeah, it saved a life. Saved a life. Uh, so yeah. that was really a highlight for us to hear that it's yeah. starting to, to make a difference. Wow. Yeah. And what, how, did you, how did you get into this? Hmm. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I kind of just stumbled into it really i didn't know much about the fishing um about lobstering or about life jackets and um found this job and got into it and it it's been really exciting really wonderful it's probably been the most fun job i've ever had but we yeah. love the people we work with yeah <laughs> but i and i stumbled in it the the place we work is the northeast center for occupational health and safety and it's one of NIOSH has our North uh, National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health has created centers across the country, and we're the Northeast Center, so we cover Maine yeah. to West Virginia. And what we work on is all occupational health mm-hmm. and safety, so trying to keep people able to do their jobs and stay alive yeah. and not get injured. And it's in forestry and fishing and, and farming. And so I started out actually with the farming community, working on power takeoff equipment and shielding yeah. for that to prevent injuries and deaths. And then it just naturally sort of segued into this work. Um, I'm an occupational mm-hmm. therapist by training, so it's sort of untraditional <laughs> occupational therapy, but it fits. Yeah. It's still about how do you help someone do the work they love and be able to do it in the best way possible. So it's um, it's. But I, as Jess said, this is one of my happiest jobs because we love working yeah. with the fishermen. It's yeah. a great group of people, yeah. and every day we're learning wonderful yeah. <laughs> new things. And I think what we like about our work is um, sometimes research is studying people. Yeah. We're not. We're listening to people. We get to yeah. listen all the time, and we get to sort of say, okay, how do we solve that? Yeah. Here's a problem. What do we do? Yeah. So it's like a big jigsaw puzzle of responding yeah. to what people's needs are. And they know best. We don't. We don't have the answers. They do. So we like that. Mm-hmm. Makes it interesting. Did you find uh, talking to fishermen about safety issues was different from talking to people who worked on farms? There's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there is. Yeah. I work with. Um, I work on a project with loggers in Maine as well, and there's a lot of uh, similarities in how each group talks about safety or. Um, the concerns that they bring up and we we talk about in the office a lot because it's it's how they they survive but it's their life as well it's not just their job it's something they love and so they want to keep doing it and they're you know I think justifiably concerned about things that come in and change that you know they don't want to have something that makes it harder for them to do what they love or enjoy what they do and so you know, I think mm-hmm. that's what we find a lot. Yeah. Is there a um, is there a kind of fatalism about the about the occupational hazards of fishing that you have to kind of overcome? I think that's often spoken about, but I think um, I would say 
Not really. You know, I think that's the portrayal that gets put on it. But when you actually speak with people, they want to be alive. They want to get home. They want to see their family. They're not out there trying to die, you know. So uh, we, Jess and I, get sort of heated about this sometimes (laughs) because people are often saying, oh, they're risk takers. Oh, they just want to die. You know, why aren't they wearing that? They're stupid. And we're like, no, actually, they have a lot of good reasons for not doing this. And they want to be alive. They want to get home. So we're... um, that's, yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't say that, that, it, they're, fatalistic. that they're fatalistic no. about it at all. Um, in fact, I'd say a lot of them are very aware of it and right. very conscious of wanting something to fix it or, or a solution to a problem they can't find yet. So I think it's and, the opposite. And they're, they're very they're aware very, of the risks. You know, yeah. it, When you get talking to someone, yeah, they might not be wearing a life jacket that day, but they're probably doing... 10 or 20 other things that are highly safety aware. They're making Mm -hmm. sure that engine works really well. They're making sure, you know, their crew is safe and knows things. They're looking at what they're doing. They're watching the weather. You know, there's so much that goes into every day. It's not just about a life jacket. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So safety is a very multifactorial thing. And it's very complex. And we see people making a lot of good choices. um, And and being very aware. Solutions. Yeah, very innovative. amazing changes to their boats just to make them safer yeah i mean i think in relation to what we've been working on for the last two years with this life jacket project um we've had some really positive stories come back to us um we had a captain um down in massachusetts who started out wasn't at all interested in life jackets didn't want his crew wearing them thought they were you know a a hazard a, a danger for them and then agreed to help us out anyway and try a life jacket and turned around and in a, like less than a year, a year, he had a policy on his boat where his crew's required to wear life jackets now. And, you know, it, that was a big change for us, a, a great change and a, a very nice forward <laughs> movement. Um, you know, we've had stories like that, which are really positive and wonderful to hear. And we've heard a lot of heartbreaking stories of loss and, you know, captains not being able to pull their crewmen back on board and having them drown right in front of their eyes. Those are really hard hard uh, for people to live with. And and we hear them and really hold Mm -hmm. them as, you know, very precious stories. And then we Mm -hmm. hear people talk to us about their close calls that they've survived. And what's beautiful about those is often they're telling us, now I want a life jacket, you know, yeah. and now I, you know, I'm ready. Yeah. And uh, so we're feeling optimistic yeah. with the stories we're hearing. I know one issue that our organization is about to start trying to work on is in the fishing community is sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. which is really largely gone unlooked at. And so uh, there's an effort to see how to address that, how to evaluate mm-hmm. the, the impacts of that on safety and health. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll be a new area to be looking at. It's been well examined in other fields, but not yeah. in fishing. And yet it's something that's spoken about a lot as an issue. That was Jessica Eckerd and Rebecca Weil talking about their project to increase safety at sea and their efforts to make life jackets and other safety gear more accessible to fishermen. These were the last stories that we have time to share on today's Coastal Conversations, but there are so many more voices of women connected to the fishing industry. 
Among the ones we'll have to save for another day are the story of how a young woman from inland New Hampshire made her way to Maine, learned to scallop and lobster, and went on to become a leader of the Eastern Maine Skippers Program. That's the high school program you heard about at the top of the hour, from Frieda McKee, who welcomed Maine students on the deck of her Prince Edward Island lobster boat. We'll also have to wait to hear from a woman who directs government relations for a fishing company that lands much of the herring used for lobster bait in Maine. And we'll have to wait to hear from a fisheries analyst who has spent the better part of her 30-year career looking at changes happening throughout the fishing industry. Suffice it to say, women have been making their mark on this industry for years and will continue to do so more and more into the future. As Sonia Corbett, the trap builder from South Portland, said in the first half of the show, you go, girl. Thanks for listening. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning.